I remember when I was 24. Hitting those Yurchenko vaults all over the place, right? Yeah, I couldn't do the vault of death at all uh, at that age. (laughs) Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 25th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for thanks for having me back. Thanks for allowing me back, even though uh, even though you got to delight in talking about hockey while I was gone. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we'll slip in some hockey in this one too. Yeah, maybe we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and from Los Angeles is five thirty eight contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. Um, I'm a little tired. I was up late last night watching. Uh, Winnipeg, Edmonton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What'd you think of that Man, game, What's Sarah? up with the Oilers? God. You know what? I what actually a waste. Was, I was actually going to bring that up, that that game up. So whatever, you Are can't. You uh, yes, I have it. <laughs> that that was a triple overtime. The Jets sweeping the Oilers. That's amazing. It was big. It was big. We were all watching. A lot of multi-overtime <laughs> games in these playoffs, it feels like, so far. Yeah. Is that weird? I don't I We should look to see if that's weird. It feels weird. I like it. It feels like there's a lot of overtime in general. It it does feel like playoff overtime, there's always a lot of multi-overtime. Aside from hockey, there was so, so much going on this weekend in sports with, oh, the Knicks Heat, or the Knicks Hawks series, which is, which was, that first game was amazing. I love that Atlanta's Trey Young is like now the new villain for the Knicks. Um, I know. Or for me, hero. Hero. For, yes, right. Of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the, 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 the Knicks play one playoff game and they have a new Reggie Miller. I know. That's all. That's they were so they were desperate for it. And, and Trey Young just sl- slid into that role. Um, I want to shout out the New York Liberty winning their fifth game this season. That's three more wins than they had all of last season. So that's amazing. What a fun team. I think we flagged them in the in the WNBA preview as a team to a, that that could be a big turnaround team. Yeah, not with, to humble brag off that. I know they're they're a super fun team with um, with Sabrina, with Laney, with Howard. What a great team! But I do I need to say my my favorite moment of the weekend, which came when Tottenham scored twice in the last ten minutes of their game against Leicester on the last game of the Premier League season denying Leicester a a spot in the Champions League and, most importantly, finishing above Arsenal in the table. Harry Kane may be leaving Spurs, but I can at least hold this over our friend in the control room, misguided Arsenal fan Tony Chow, for another season. Very important, even though the Premier League actually finished in a super boring fashion. It was just the the top four teams that we had going into the season were the top four teams. Poor Leicester. (laughs) Poor Lester, it's true. I still have a soft spot for them after that uh, amazing championship a few years ago. I yeah, know things have changed for them, but still. Yeah, they came so close to uh, what? It's just brutal. Just a brutal way to finish for them. Um, but I'll take it. So that's all that matters. On today's show, we'll talk about the offensive slump in Major League Baseball and see if any additional no-hitters have been thrown since we started recording this podcast. Then we'll take a look at Phil Mickelson's record-breaking win at the PGA Championship and dig into why more athletes keep excelling as they age. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We are almost a third of the way through the baseball season, and if the Minnesota Twins can finally win an extra inning game, 
anything can still happen. A lot already has happened, specifically six no-hitters, which is only one behind the modern-era full-season record of seven, reached most recently in 2015, and two behind the all-time season record for no-hitters in baseball, set in 1884. Regardless of what happens with the rest of the season, there are a lot of strong feelings about the number of no-hitters we've already had and whether they're ruining baseball. On the MLB Network's High Heat last week, Chris Mad Dog Russo wasn't shy about making his feelings known. But there's too many no-hitters. Uh, the Rangers last night I watched was swinging for the fences every single pitch in a 2-0 game. I mean, eventually, can you work the count? Can you put the ball in play? We now have six no-hitters through whatever it might be. What, 40 games of the season? We had back-to-back no-hitters on back-to-back days. The all-time record for no-hitters is like eight. I mean, nobody hits. The batting averages are 25 points lower than they have been ever in the history of baseball. There's no work in the count. There's no pushing the ball and putting the ball with the eight. There's no hitting the opposite field. I mean, there's absolutely nothing. And to me, that takes away from the specialness, which is what you see here, which is a no-hitter. I mean, it takes, when I mean, there's so many of them, and I think it's a lot easier now to pitch the no-hitters where the offense operates. I think it hurts the idea of the accomplishment from that standpoint. All right, Neil, is it actually easier to pitch a no-hitter this year? What is going on? <sighs> Yes, it is easier to pitch a no-hitter, and that's not just because we've like seen it happen so many times, but all of the factors that have gone into it, I think, statistically show up in terms of this is the second fewest hits per game of any MLB season in history, ahead of only 1908. Uh, in terms of batting average, it's uh, tied for the lowest of all time, tied with that uh, infamous year of the pitcher in 1968. Both years had a 237 batting average. I think we're seeing fewer balls put in play. Uh, obviously, many people have bemoaned the rise of the strikeout, uh, but also compared with 1968, fewer plate appearances give you a chance to get a hit because there's more walks than there were then. There's way more hit by pitch, almost twice as many hit by pitches um, per, per game as there was then. So it's just a confluence of all of these factors I think coming together that yeah hits are harder to come by this year and so uh, the conditions are kind of ripe to create these games in which no teams get hit and we should note that uh, for all of the no-hitters this year, it's happened to teams on multiple occasions. You've seen, like, the Mariners and uh, the Rangers. And who was the third one that got uh, no-hit twice? The Indians? Yeah, the Indians got no-hit twice. So I think there's something to that also where, like, for a long time, the the Mariners as a team were hitting below 200. <laughs> and yet also were, like competitive they are like around 500 record wise but i just think that you, you you have these teams that are sort of so extremely geared around not getting hits uh but maybe generating offense through home runs and and walks and uh, the three true outcomes that contributes to it too in addition to the baseline team being less likely likely to get a hit you also have teams at the extreme low end of the spectrum that are very unlikely to get hits in in any given game why why is this i don't understand baseball why is this a problem <laughs> like why well, are that's... people complaining why are people complaining about this well that's the, that's the question no hitters are fun i love no hitters I want more no-hitters. I, I think this is a great thing. So is there a point for you, Jeff, that like a, that no-hitters would then like 
enough no hitters would be not fun anymore. Like, are I mean, there, maybe, is there a number? But I mean, maybe, but I don't think that'll ever happen because I think it, it, it just inherently it's hard to throw a no hitter. I don't think we're ever going to see a no hitter like you know, 20 a season or something like that. I mean, we're on pace for that, Jeff. We're on No, pace but I, I think it's a little mm-hmm. random, okay? And also, you know, I think in terms of the league hitting numbers, and Neil, you would know more about this than me, so feel free to correct me after I say it, but aren't, <laughs> doesn't the hitting tend to go up a little bit in the July and August and the high summer months? It does. Just a little bit. Okay. No, it so does. That's I don't totally wanna, true. I don't want to read too much into the, the hitting being down, even though it clearly is down. But the no-hitters to me, look at the pitchers who throw them. That's all you need to know. It's not, you know, Walker Bueller and Jacob deGrom and all the dominant. It's a bunch. Of, it's Spencer Turnbull and John <laughs> Means. It's random. So it's a little fluky. And it's always been that way. There's always been a strange collection of pitchers who have thrown no hitters, you know, mixed in with Homer Bailey has two no hitters. What else do we need to say? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, But doesn't that, I mean, I think some of the, yes, like Corey Kluber had one this year at one point was arguably the best pitcher in baseball, you know, uh, a handful of years ago. But yeah, I mean, the fact that it has been Spencer Turnbull and Wade Miley and like some of these kind of random guys, I think that's, played into the the hand wringing in some ways and maybe that is forgetting history like forgetting that one year what was it like 10 years ago uh where like Dallas Braden threw a perfect game and Phil Humber had a no hitter and you know in addition to like almost had the Galarraga no uh, yeah Armando Galarraga yeah so like there was a time not that long ago where equally random pitchers were throwing no hitters. And, but also we had equal amounts of kind of hand wringing over like, Oh, does this devalue the no hitter? Does this make it less special? And I think baseball fans, especially like very online Twitter using baseball fans, they love to complain about things. And so it's sort of, uh, it is funny to me that a couple years ago the complaint was there's too many home runs. We talked about this, I think, at length during the um, the 2019 season when the Twins broke the all-time record, but also the Yankees did, uh, and also I think maybe the Dodgers did too. Like multiple teams broke the all-time record for home runs, and people were hand wringing over too many home runs, and now they're hand wringing over too few hits. Uh, you know, and and it's sort of. I think people will find a way to complain about anything, but also, you know, I want to talk about the the common thread across both of those things is the ball, which has changed uh, since last season, but certainly since two seasons ago uh, in the way that MLB has kind of tinkered with regulating and standardizing the process for making the ball. They've also, I think, contributed some to the lack of offense this year because they have made it harder to hit home runs. Home runs per game are down and and more than you would expect just based on the stage of the season and the weather, like you mentioned, Jeff, uh, that we're in. Even if you look at things like how often do hard hit balls go, you know, how far do hard hit balls go, basically. So they have this stat at MLB with StatCast called barrels, which is basically perfectly hit balls in terms of uh, exit velocity and launch angle. 
So a barrel hit to the outfield in 2017, for instance, went an average distance of 369 feet. This year, a barrel hit to the outfield only traveled 362 feet on average. And some of that is probably weather effects and, you know, comparing full seasons to uh, the first couple months of the season. But a seven foot difference, I think, does speak to the fact that they wanted to deaden the ball going into the season and they accomplished that goal, but almost forgot that the home runs were sort of propping up offense over the previous few seasons. Like the only thing keeping the 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 seasons from looking like that 2011, 2012 period where we were getting the Philip Humber no hitters and all kinds of people upset about the lack of offense was the lively ball and the increased home runs. So now they've sort of taken that out of the equation, done nothing to address the strikeouts uh, and, and the lack of balls in play. And in fact, exacerbated it because the median spin rate on fastballs and breaking balls this year is higher than it was last year uh, and the year before that they've actually sort of contributed to the problem I think in some ways and made no hitters more likely maybe just at the margins but that these are marginal events right these right. are these are really um, multiple standard deviation type events anyway I think that's what that's what frustrates me so much about the about really the whole how do we fix baseball debate because MLB wants to you know is is considering these like kind of major changes to to the dimensions and you know instituting rules about how you you know can you should you ban the shift etc and in the background they're making these sneaky changes that do have Effects. I mean, I'm still mad about the the in season ball changes in 2019, where you know you let a team, a plucky team from the upper Midwest, hit a million home runs all season, and then you change the ball in the postseason, and suddenly <laughs> they can't hit home runs. Like, oh yeah, hypothetically, if that were to happen, some plucky team. But you know, these like sneaky changes that they're not really being honest about are happening and having this effect. But then we're still having this conversation about how do we how do we help, you know, pitcher or how do we help batters when pitchers are getting so much better? Well, don't make the ball worse, maybe one option, guys. I'm s so, I don't know why everything in baseball has to be this existential crisis. <laughs> why, why, like everything that happens first of all Baseball forever has always been this kind of chess match between pitchers and hitters. Pitchers clearly have the upper hand right now. There's a lot of reasons that could be. It could be something nefarious, like, you know, there's a lot of evidence. There's more pitchers are putting some foreign substance on the ball and synthetic foreign substance that's not being caught. That's possible if you're, you know, a conspiracy theorist and actually... Or just a person with eyes. Or, or just yeah, someone watching requires baseball. requires a conspiracy theory. <laughs> or just someone who's talked to a baseball player. Um, but also look at some of the technology going into to pitching. You know, 538's written about it. You know, all these Rapsodo machines and the pitch shaping and all this stuff. And you're seeing this, like, these guys are coming up and they're awesome. And you're seeing older pitchers who are bad. Kevin Gossman was terrible his whole career. He's now awesome. Like, baseball curmudgeons who want to go back to the days of, of Tony Gwynn and Rod Carew and, and you know, choking up and, and getting these singles... It's hard to make contact. These guys are all throwing 98 miles per hour. It, it's a lot easier to put the ball in play when you're getting a 92 mile per hour fastball. I was interested as we were preparing this segment and reading about reading about the issue. We're still like the the modern record for no hitters in a season was tied in 2015. That was six years ago. Like 
we're in 2015 were we all you know bemoaning the the too many no hitters i think we were in the sense that it's it was a continuation of that early 2010s period the phil humber no hitter era as we'll call it from henceforth so i think we were but that there's no coincidence that like that summer or maybe the following season was when we saw the unexplained increase in home runs and the ball start to be more lively, which then sort of uh, took a lot of the attention away from uh, no hitters because there were a lot of home runs and there weren't as many no hitters and offense was kind of propped up again by that. There was only one in 2016 and only one in 2017. So those were definitely down years for no hitters that followed that. So the that record of seven... So it was most recently tied in 2015, but it was set in 1990, matched in 91, and matched in 2012. And like, I don't, well, 91, I was preoccupied with the Twins winning the World Series, so. But I don't remember that being a big Snuck problem. Snuck that in there. I know. You know, like, if is it even a baseball segment if I'm not talking about the, the World Series winning Twins? No. Um, I, I just feel like this is a. When it when a couple happen right in a row, that's when people notice and freak out. And so there are a bunch that happen in this like time frame, and the it happening multiple times to the same team. And on back to back days. Yeah, yeah, and that those are. Although we should say you mentioned 1990, Dave Stewart and Fernando Valenzuela threw no hitters. On the same day, June 29th, 1990. I am genuinely curious as to whether there were people that were freaking out over that happening. Um, (laughs) Or whether they were like, this is really cool. Because it does seem, especially like Dave Stewart and Fernando Valenzuela are pretty cool pitchers, at least, you know, from my childhood. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. There was a good list in 90. Because you had Randy Johnson's first and you had Nolan Ryan's sixth. Sick. And then he he would get another one the next year. Seven no hitters, which is... Just, I still think might be the most unbreakable record in sports, even with all the, in baseball. Uh, Actually, it's probably not true. It's probably like Cy Young wins, but still seven (laughs) no hitters is ridiculous. I do want to, I want to go through uh, Mad Dog's um, early radio career and find him complaining about the no hitters in, in 1992. Let's, uh, let's see if we can find that. (laughs) Find that Mike and the Mad Dog episode. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. So, so we seem to be in agreement that this is not that big of a deal. Yes. I think it's a, it's kind of a big deal. I just don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's, I mean, I just don't think it's a crisis. I mean, it, it's again, it's baseball sort of t- taking a positive and turning it into a panic. <laughs> I do think that it, it kind of runs concurrent with uh, some of the trends that probably aren't good for the game, like the increased strikeouts and some of the things that they are trying to address uh, with maybe moving the mound back uh, and maybe, you know, doing some of these other uh, perhaps extreme radical solutions. Um, but if if the balance of, of power between pitchers and hitters has gotten too out of control and they um, feel like they need to address that, and I think it was Ben Lindbergh wrote this that um, at the Ringer, that like maybe this is the moment where it gets people's attention, right? Like maybe it doesn't even have to be sort of that tied to the underlying reasons. Maybe it is more of a fluke than anything else. But if it 
makes people sort of pay attention and be like, maybe there should be something done about the increase in strikeout rate and the decrease in batting average and the decrease in stuff that I think fans, you know, there have been, I think Theo Epstein, uh, who now works for the MLB, um, you know, main office in trying to kind of improve the game and has been behind some of these experiments. He mentioned on MLB Network a few weeks ago, like they did internal surveys and they found that fans do want more of action with balls in play and they want more great defensive plays that don't involve shifting and and they want fewer strikeouts and they want you know uh just more dynamism in the game maybe if this is something that that is a wake-up call for for there to be rule changes that address that then maybe it is like a good crisis point, even if it's kind of a fake crisis point, because we know that it's probably more random than anything else, but they don't know that. I just, I I think I might be the only baseball fan who does not care about any of that. And who, who is, I'm fine with the more strikeouts and better defensive planning right now, because I see baseball as this like pendulum. And right now it's, it's, a little bit against the hitters but with the next you know (laughs) with whatever happens next it'll swing back and I hate it when leagues tinker and that's that is my problem with the ball changes that they're tinkering and not being honest about it so that we don't really even know what's behind some of the like year-to-year fluctuations you know the the home run rate being down if you didn't know that something's going on with the ball, that that's super confusing. And you would think that pitchers are are even are doing even better than they actually are. So you never you never have a, a clear picture of what's actually going on because of the tinkering. And I just I want this to happen. I want changes in the game to happen more organically. I want hitters to figure out other things, figure out how to beat the shift. And maybe some of the changes to the ball are trying to, like, encourage that. I, I would never attribute um, such intention to anything that uh, MLB has done under Rob Manfred. But you could see a situation where by deadening the ball some, you start to discourage this idea of hitting home runs over the shift uh, and change the, the almost the reward structure of being a hitter because – uh, in addition to all of the pitchers, you know, learning about spin rate and having their Rapsodo machines and, you know, uh, all of these things, the big change in hitting over the past decade has been the idea of lifting the ball, fly balls. You know, this is how you generate offense. And they would say, I don't care that I can bunt it against the, you know, down the third base line uh, and get a free single because it's worth more to me uh, that if I hit a fly ball over the shift, it could become a home run. Well, if that's not true anymore and that ball is traveling seven fewer feet and so a ball that would go over the fence instead dies at the warning track, maybe you start to have those hitters reassess it and maybe they think about the bunt and maybe they think about going the opposite way. But these guys are coming into the league they can't come to Major League Baseball and then teach them how to hit a different way. This is the way they're hitting, you know, as they come up through the system, you know, when they are in the minors or in their college baseball or whatever, you know, because I think... They learned to lift the ball. There were plenty of guys. J.D. Martinez is a great example of somebody that mid-career was struggling and then started doing the the launch angles. Right, right. But And turned his career around. So why can't you do the opposite? Because I think they're incentivized to hit home runs. I mean, that's how they get big paydays that's how they but get what if contracts. that's not part of the the calculus anymore because they've deadened the ball i would i would argue though that even with that 
home runs are still it like it would be one thing if home runs just didn't happen anymore like the ball was so deadened that you can't hit a home run but you obviously still can and home runs are still worth more yeah they're still they still value even it's all relative you know if there's fewer home runs league-wide you know 30 home runs becomes more valuable than it was a couple of years ago yeah, I think I think the I think the ball would have to be traveling way less far, and I don't think the league wants to do that. And and that's the other problem. Like, not only are home runs worth more, obviously, you know, worth worth a run um, as opposed to a, a bunt single, but they're also they have been valued by the league by pop culture. I mean, they're it's not just that they're worth more; they're also you know, more exciting. They are the 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 thing to do in baseball, even though people are saying, well, I want more singles. I don't really believe them. There were, you know, there were entire marketing campaigns about chicks digging the long ball. Like that's, you can't just like pretend that that wasn't true and that it wasn't, that it isn't important to baseball. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of things at play there and it would be really hard, I think, to change that entire culture, especially when that's not even what, MLB is trying to do really they're not trying to make home runs not happen they just want they want their cake and and they want to eat it too all right well I think we can leave uh that here for now I'm sure there'll be um more discussion on what MLB is doing and probably three more no hitters tonight so let's take a break and then we'll come back to talk about Phil Mickelson The PGA Championship concluded on Sunday with Phil Mickelson becoming the oldest golfer ever to win a major at the spry age of 50. He has a chance to break that record in a month at the U.S. Open when he will have turned 51. Mickelson was quite literally mobbed on the 18th fairway by fans celebrating his victory, much to the annoyance of Brooks Kepka, who also got trapped in the scrum. But it was a surprising as well as historic moment. On Golf.com's The Drop Zone, Dylan DeChair talked about the reasons no one saw Mickelson's win coming and maybe why we should have. It's a reminder that in this day and age of, of stats and probability and course fit and all these different things, sometimes we, we forget these simple truisms that, you know, Phil Mickelson has won 40-something golf tournaments on the PGA Tour for a reason. And there is something in that man that he has not forgotten. Uh, there's no quit in him. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely a reminder that, yeah, it's easy to dismiss a guy because you, you look at his uh, driving accuracy rank on, you know, data golf or on the PGA Tour's stats corner. And then you get to reality and he's still Phil Mickelson. We do love a take that bashes the limits of stats here on Hot Takedown. Classic. Neil, is there anything we can sort of quantify about how Phil won this tournament? Or is it is it really all down to the fact that he just doesn't quit? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think there's something to that in the sense that he played much better in this tournament than he had in his uh, in, in the previous season leading up to it. I mean, I think that's no secret. Um, and... and Golf is a is an interesting sport that way where where people can sort of get hot for four rounds and suddenly, you know, win despite uh, not really being predicted to do so. But in terms of how he played, I mean, he followed the the pattern that we've seen from 
you know, a lot of people who win, and we've talked about this before, he was number one in the field in strokes gained, tee to green. Uh, he was number five in the field in strokes gained uh, approaching the hole, which uh, is no surprise. I mean, he was hitting some balls that were just like so close to the hole. And he putted relatively, you know, he putted well enough. Uh, and he... Uh, stayed on enough fairways you know which were the two I think uh, big weaknesses you know he still only hit 55% of his fairways um, but he was just good enough in those categories and then he struck the ball really well on his approaches was really good around the green uh, and generally you know made up most of his strokes there on the field that it was good enough to win especially the way that course was playing yeah I mean I think um, it kind of all came together and and there was no way to see this. I, I'm actually still kind of shocked he won, to be honest. Mm. But you look at the thing that's sort of been his downfall recently was his driving accuracy, and it just was a lot better. I mean, like, look at that drive of, what was it, the second to last hole or whatever, where he hit it 360 yards down the fairway. I mean, he just, his short game and his sort of craftiness with the wedges and around the green, is it's always been fun. So that was always there, but having... That performance off the tee and and being able to the most amazing thing was being able to keep it up uh, for four rounds and he himself has spoken about this that he's just kind of lost concentration um, as he's gotten older he's had trouble focusing you know for multiple rounds um, that, I think I think that's why he's he's been meditating just a couple <laughs> weeks ago or I think it was the Wells Fargo what a recent PGA Tour event he he jumped down to a huge lead and then shot like. 8275 just completely vanished after that um after a great um Thursday Thursday performance you know where he was leading the field and then just fell off the map so I, I think a lot of people were kind of expecting that to happen I mean even like on the odds makers he wasn't even the favorite going into Sunday Brooks was and you look at the live betting he was he was seldom the favorite so I think the anticipation was, because we've watched Mickelson in the past, that he was going to just, you know, do something incredibly stupid, like hit it in I'm the I'm not going to lie. I, I thought he was going to, yeah, yeah, I thought he was going to three putt on 18 for sure. I was something. like, oh, yeah. this is going to go badly. And yeah. We saw a little bit, Um, I think it was on 16 on Saturday when he hit it in the water and it was just like a terrible decision. And I think that's the fill we're kind of used to, just making the big mistake, the kind of blow-up holes. And he just, you know, he played a little bit differently, I think, than he normally plays. You know, he's he's known as a kind of reckless, aggressive player. And I think he was playing, you know, was a little more measured, which is the way he should be playing at age 50. Um, well, so that's how 50-year-olds win these tournaments. <laughs> well, they don't win these tournaments. Now it is the blueprint yeah, for a 50-year-old yeah. to win. <laughs> So, so does Jeff? Does this win change how we think about Mickelson as a golfer, or does it d- does it really matter? I mean, I think it matters. It's a it's a, a rare feat to get this many majors, and you know, I think a lot of people sort of assumed his major winning days were over, and you know, it's very much as akin to Tiger winning a couple years ago at Augusta. I think it was it's a Hall of Fame golfer already, and it's just another thing to add to his legacy, and you know bumps him up a notch i think in in the in the in terms of the legacy that he will have on this game i think so too um you know six majors he's obviously never going to catch tiger uh who has uh 15 uh and even even tiger probably won't ever add on to that uh when it's all said and done and and so yeah i think mickelson's legacy in 
a large way, especially up until now, has always been like in the shadow of Tiger, a guy that like couldn't quite, you know, imagine being one of the like 10 best golfers ever or whatever, however we want to rank him, yet also consistently being the second best golfer of your era by a pretty significant margin. I mean, that was really the story of most of Phil's career, especially early on uh, with Tiger just sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So I think in the, in some ways, this one that he has, especially the record for the oldest, it's something that probably, given what happened to Tiger earlier this year, probably uh, Tiger will never have. Like, this will be the one accomplishment, you know, that, that Phil Mickelson can kind of have on Tiger. Uh, and yeah, he won't have more majors than him, but he will, you know, a- until some 51-year-old wins. Uh, well, uh, maybe it'll be Phil. He's actually pretty close to turning 51. Um, then, uh, you know, he'll be known for that forever. I think that's kind of cool. That that's like adds a little extra to this particular major. Yeah, I agree with that. I also wonder, Phil seems like the kind of guy who could keep going. Maybe not another major. It's just hard to win majors. But you could see him winning more tournaments um, at this age. I mean, he's he's he is playing well. And if he has figured out how to sort of calm down and focus a little bit more, you, you know, maybe he could. I think we'll see... He seems like, you know, the kind of guy like Fred Couples or Bernard Langer who are kind of always lingering around at Augusta, um, you know, especially the first couple of days, like top of the leaderboard. I think we'll see a lot of the Phil for the next 10 years, you know, especially at that course. I mean, that's what was so strange about this is that this was by yardage. This was the longest major ever. And it was won by a 50 year old. I mean, it, it just didn't make sense. I mean. There were certain aspects of it, and we've seen older players do well at at the British Open. There were certain aspects of it that sort of had the feel of a British Open, you know, with the wind and with the um, sort of penalizing uh, sand and and water and and just, you know, having to play smart, you know, in the conditions and the elements, playing downwind, into the wind, all that. So I think that sometimes favors experience. And look at the leaderboard. I mean, you know, Patrick... Harrington, who has been non-existent in professional golf for the last few years, finished in the top five. And that's a guy who's won the, you know, won the British Open and had its success in, in, you know, windy conditions, too. Yeah. Well, so Mickelson joins a a growing roster of elite athletes who are playing well past what we would expect to be. I love it. They're prime. I'm in favor. (laughs) Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> the older we get, the better it is. Um, but, you know, Tom Brady, Serena Williams, all of these amazing athletes who keep going long long after we would think that they would be done. Beyond golf, Neil, how is the landscape of sports changing with athletes being able to take advantage of conditioning regimens and the like to stay at the, the top of their game for longer? Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that we've sort of seen this happen. I was a little surprised, actually, that um, so Julius Boros uh, was the previous holder of the oldest major winner uh, in history is 48 uh, in 1968. 1968, that was a long time ago. And yeah, we all we all remember Jack Nicklaus being the oldest Masters winner. That was a, a little bit more recently in 1986. He won at age 46, but still, that's a, a reasonably long time ago. So in some ways, it's a little surprising that someone hadn't done this until now, uh, as, given the fact that golf is one of these lifetime sports, they always say, that um, you can 
theoretically, you you can enter tournaments, and we've seen it, like you said, Jeff, at the Masters, we see former champions who are extremely old uh, being able to at least like participate and sometimes i mean they are sometimes uh uh, being able to you know have have like a good round or two so you would think that it would have happened i mean i think back to um was it 2009 when uh tom watson yeah i mean uh, he was 59 almost won the british open um over stewart sink so it has like almost happened sometimes uh over the years but yeah it was a little surprising that it uh that it hadn't happened until now but i don't think it's a coincidence and maybe it does have something to do with tennis and golf are always sort of lumped together and we've seen in tennis uh in addition to serena on the women's side on the men's side just this generation of uh slam winners that absolutely will not go away right uh i'm not saying i want them to go away but they are sort of blowing up the aging curve there I don't know necessarily what it is uh, uh, in terms of the similarities between the sports because obviously tennis is a much more physically demanding game uh, than golf. And and so you would expect maybe something like golf or playing quarterback behind a great offensive line like Tom Brady has done uh, to be less physically demanding than having to run the baseline uh, against much younger uh, (laughs) hitters in tennis. But I I don't know uh, what that is. I mean, certainly the conditioning factor and the sports medicine breakthroughs that have uh, come over the years and the ability to bounce back from injuries that previously would have derailed someone's career in their 30s. Now you can kind of rehab from that and still be a competitive player at 40 or older, you know, I think seeing that, um, that might be the biggest, uh, change. Uh, but it is interesting how different sports have different versions of these aging curves because we just got done talking about baseball. If anything, baseball is skewing younger now, mainly because of the economics of the sport, but also the lack of performance enhancing drugs that we saw maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, those, uh, played a factor. Uh, in making baseball younger. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's sort of not across the board, across all the sports, but it does seem like uh, golf and, and in particular like golf and tennis seem to be ones where if you were good 20 years ago and you didn't have something catastrophic happen, or even in the case of Tiger Woods, you can kind of come back from that and, and rehab from that, you are still good uh, now if, if you're talented enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think the golf one makes sense. I, the tennis to me, it, it just I that I don't understand. That to me, it's a completely different. I mean, just playing that tennis is exhausting. Golf, <laughs> you go out there at any time, you see old guys who are awesome, running, you know, d- destroying me on the course, because um, there is a certain you know experience does help to a certain degree, and in in terms of consistency at least, and and but tennis like that. I have no answers for that. <laughs> yeah, it's so much more physically demanding. And and yes, Phil's the oldest, but you know, like you mentioned Tom Watson, but we've seen other stuff too. You know, the year before Tom Watson, you know, almost won the the British Open, Greg Norman was leading on Sunday. We've seen like Lee Westwood just this year, he's 48. I I think what's what surprises me about golf. I think you're you're right that, you know, obviously you can golf for a really long time to 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 hit with the distance. Yeah. As you get older. It, that's the surprising part of me. And that is more what I equate to like the kind of like conditioning and strength you need in tennis. Um, 
Because you you would think that the younger the young guns in golf who can hit a million miles would be doing better against the older, craftier veterans. Also, I really I love that we use crafty for old people in sports. You know, you've got the crafty <laughs> the crafty left handers in baseball who are Jamie like Moyer. yes, who are forty five and still throwing like the the I the, I want I want someone as I I'll know I'm like old when people start calling me crafty. Yeah, crafty um, is a euphemism <laughs> for not athletic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm a crafty editor. Let me tell you. Um, but that is where I think that like that distance. That's surprising. That that you'd be able to overcome the 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 power that. Well, the he's. I mean, is, he's been working on it. He just hasn't been hitting him straight. And and I think part of it is you know a testament to Phil realizing that was the direction the game was going and and really trying to improve in that area. Um, and I think also the equipment is a big factor here. Can't forget the equipment. <laughs> nope. <laughs> that's that's a good point. Never. Still doesn't explain tennis, but um, again, but doesn't yeah, explain tennis. Point. No, tennis is this just it's just weird. It's just running. It's like running wind sprints back and forth. Aren't they tired? I'm tired. I played tennis yeah. for ten minutes the other day, and I wanted to take a nap. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, um, you know, well, you know, I I think it'll be really interesting to see how Phil does the rest of the rest of this year if he can compete at the majors um, or you know just well, just he's got the U.S. Open look good. where he's always yeah. done great. No, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Barring there's that. the last few holes. <laughs> Oof. Ouch. <laughs> Which actually that does sound right. All right. I think we can leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I have something for you guys. As you know, I love the Olympics, and I am obsessed with gymnastics, specifically the gymnastics of Simone Biles. She's the goat. She's so much fun to watch. She does things that should not be possible, and yet there she is doing them. That was the case this weekend. At the U.S. Classic, which was her first meet since 2019, she debuted the long-awaited Yurchenko Double Pike Vault, the hardest vault in the sport, one that had never been landed by a woman in competition before. She actually had a little too much power on the vault and took a big step back out of it, but that stuff didn't really matter. It was a gorgeous vault. Aside from that vault, Biles had kind of a choppy day for her. She fell on the uneven bars, which is usually her weakest apparatus, and she had a mistake on her floor routine when she put her hands down on a tumbling pass. But a just okay day for Simone is still the best possible day for the rest of us, and she won the all-around going away by 1.3 points over Jordan Childs. That kind of dominance is par for the course for Biles, but I've been curious about just how unusual that dominance is in a sport that's often determined by super slim margins. Now, caveat, it's almost impossible to compare scores from across the years in gymnastics. That's That's been the case forever with different judging standards and different competitions across different eras. But it's especially true in today's era without that perfect 10 based system that we used to have and under the open ended code of points, which we'll talk more about in a second. But even though I know this is a fool's errand, I still wanted to see just a little context for how good Simone is. 
So I looked at her margin of victory just in this last cycle. So any event she's competed in since the 2016 Olympics. She took 2017 off, so she's only done 10 events. For my purposes, I threw out the U.S. championships from 2018 and 2019 because they add the finals scores to the prelim scores for almost, you know, kind of double the points of other competitions. So I just ignored those so as not to inflate the margins. (laughs) In the eight meets Simone Biles has competed in since the Olympics, she has won every one, of course, and she's won by an average margin of 1.85 over the silver medalist and 2.68 over the bronze. So her finish on Sunday was a little low by her standards. To compare to that, I looked at 2012, the year before Simone debuted in senior competition. I looked at six meets in which the American women competed, including the Olympics and again throwing out the U.S. championships. In those events, the winner beat the silver medalist by an average margin of just 0.68 and the bronze medalist by 2.29. So Simone has an average margin of victory that's almost three times larger than that of the average 2012 gold medalist. That is wild. All of those numbers are courtesy of the Gymternet, which is a great database for gymnastic scores. Simone's score over the weekend could have been even higher if her scary vault had been valued at the level she believes it should be. The International Gymnastics Federation gave the vault an initial difficulty value of 6.6, while Biles and her team think it should be worth 6.8 points. It's not completely clear why the Federation has it lower than Biles thinks it should be. This comes on the heels of a similar lower valuation on her balance beam dismount than, than she wanted. Some think it might be to hold Biles back a little bit. Her quote was, they don't want the field to be too far apart. They had an open-ended code of points, and now they're mad that people are too far ahead and excelling, which you can see where, where she's coming from them. But there's also the matter of safety. This vault is very, very difficult. and could be dangerous for a gymnast who wasn't really ready for it. The Federation has devalued moves in the past when they're deemed too risky. The uh, Protonova vault, also known as the Vault of Death, had been valued at 7.1 difficulty, and it's been taken down over the past two Olympic quad cycles to just 6.4, lower than Simone's. Now, when Biles was asked before the 2016 Olympics why she didn't do the Protonova, she responded, I'm not trying to die. So <laughs> so some things are, are, are even too scary for Simone. So there are, there are different ways to look at, look at that scoring. But no matter what the score is of that particular vault, Simone Biles is still lapping her competition. At the meet this weekend, she had a small rhinestone goat on the back of her leotard, and, and it was accurate. After her events were over, she said, I'm not really mad about today. (laughs) Olympic words to live by. Is is she the um, favorite to win the all around? Yes. She's the favorite to win everything she ever enters ever. But it's just interesting that you don't, you got to go back pretty far to see a repeat gold medalist in the all around, right? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's, it's not common for, for Olympians even to you know, be in two Olympics in a row. You have to go back to 1964 and 1968. Vera Koslovska of Czechoslovakia was the last person to do it. So yes, even Nadia Komanichi didn't do it or or anyone really since yeah. then. We, there's been a lot of stars, but it's always a one Olympic cycle. 
And Simone will have, you know, had to deal with an extra year in her cycle um, and still making it back. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I was going to say she's 24 right now. And we had done some research showing that 81% of gold medals in women's artistic gymnastics were awarded to people younger than 24. Uh, So it really is at the far end of the aging curve. But, uh, you know, we were just talking about aging curves. And Simone Biles at age 24 is in the same conversation with like a Phil Mickelson at age 50. If if you look at the the relative uh, aging standards for each sport. um, and so, yeah, that that margin of victory that you were talking about, Sarah, I think that that explains like how if you're just such a once in a lifetime gymnast like she is, you have cushion over the rest of the field so that even when you start to decline with age and I don't know if she is or not, you know, uh, uh, it, it doesn't sound like it. But, um, you know, even if she were to she still has enough of a gap over the the next best competitor that it explains why she has won God knows how many gold medals in a row uh, in the all around at the competitions that she's entered. I think the last time she didn't was what, like 2013 or something like that, where she did, she entered a competition and didn't win the gold medal in the all around. So it really does speak to her like as a just totally once in a lifetime type of athlete. She's 24. Gabby Douglas is 25. Allie Reisman is 26. I mean, they're they're basically contemporaries. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, I do. You know, there's we'll, we're going to be writing about this more as a site as we get closer to the Olympics. The the way that age and longevity work in gymnastics is sort of artificial. We've set these like this is when the athletes peak windows, but it doesn't have to be like that. And speaking of people who are aging and still performing, Chelsea Memel, who was, you know, on Olympic world teams earlier in her career, she's 32. And she came back and competed in this in this US classic, realizing that she could still do things and wanted to compete again. So some of that is a little, you know, arbitrary. Some of this, though, is just Simone being incredible. I mean, she's really a, a generational talent and, and is breaking kind of what we know about about gymnastics, which is, is really cool. I'm not sure if she's going to use that vault in the rest of her competitions, if she's going to use it in the Olympics. She doesn't have to. She can win without it, and it is super dangerous. But her, her quote was that she does it because she can, because she is pushing herself in gymnastics. She can do it, so she is which is very cool to see. Well, at that point, what does she have left to prove? I mean, it really is one of those things where it's like you you start to do things just to prove it to yourself more than anything absolutely. else because there's no one left to beat. Right, absolutely. And that there's something really cool about that. Um, and it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about the next generation of, of gymnasts who are, you know, trying to beat the precedent that Simone set and... And that's kind of fun to think about, too. But it's fun to bask in her greatness right now. All right. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.